Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that 20% of U.S. adults suffer from chronic pain and 8% suffer from high-impact chronic pain. Over the past two decades, intravenous ketamine infusion has become a popular treatment option for chronic pain. In today's episode, we're discussing the use of ketamine to manage chronic pain. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. And joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Pavan Tonka. Dr. Tonka is an anesthesiologist, pain management physician, and medical director for comprehensive pain recovery in Cleveland Clinic Center for Spine Health. Pavan, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you, Glenn. So ketamine has been around forever. I remember in my early training days, you know, I always looked at it as an anesthetic agent. And one of the things that I remember is that it also had some hallucinogenic properties and hence, unfortunately, also became a drug of abuse. Uh, It goes by lots of names. I seem to recall Special K uh, as a name. You probably hate all those names. Uh, But Uh, Can you give us a brief history and tell us how it became a treatment for chronic pain, not just anesthesia? So let's start back um, actually prior to the synthesis of ketamine. So we're going back to 1956, and in an attempt to find better anesthetics, a medication by the name of benzyclidine is synthesized. That may sound familiar um, because as a tablet form, it's known as PCP. As a powdered form, it's known as angel dust. And currently, it only has illicit use. Let's go into why it went from a possible anesthetic to an illegal medication. So in 1958, scientists decided to study phencyclidine in animals. And what they found was something really uh, quite interesting. In rodents, it caused them to act drunk. In dogs, it caused them to act delirious. In pigeons, they essentially exhibited uh, catalepsy. And in monkeys, it produced general anesthesia. So the scientists at the time, rightfully so, concluded that the mechanism of action of ketamine is likely complex because it was causing a number of different reactions in different animals. But they decided to move forward with clinical trials in humans to see how it would work out. And what they found was fencyclidine actually was a very safe anesthetic. However, when patients woke up from the anesthesia, they had very significant emergence delirium. In other words, when you woke up from the anesthesia, you were in a delirious state. And oftentimes, patients would start screaming that they felt their arms or legs had been removed, which, as you can imagine, would be quite shocking if you went in for something like an appendectomy or perhaps a facelift. And so they decided, given the significant emergence delirium, it didn't make sense to move forward with this medication as a general anesthetic. However, in 1962, a uh, Dr. Stevens, an organic chemist at Wayne State University, decided to uh, work with the uh, pencyclidine molecule, and he came up with a substance that was initially characterized as CI581. And what made it unique is it had a ketone and an amine ring 
on the molecule. And so if you combine the ketone and amine, what do you get? You get ketamine, right? Uh, and so this was found to be the, the uh, likely best molecule to move forward with, with clinical trials. So then in 1964, uh, Drs. Domino and Corson at the University of Michigan uh, asked 20 prison volunteers to do a clinical trial on of this medication. And in a dose-dependent fashion, they increased the dose of ketamine. And what they found was something very interesting. Uh, at a low dose, there was essentially no effect. Uh, at a medium dose, a lot of the individuals felt, quote-unquote, spaced out. And then at a high dose, the ketamine produced general anesthesia. Of note, no one had significant emergence delirium, which was a win because that's why fencyclidine was not used uh, subsequently. Something of note, all the patients, irrespective of their dose, all felt like they were floating in outer space. And anyone who's used ketamine at any dose, low dose or high dose, oftentimes will have patients afterwards say something like, Doc, you will not believe this, but I was in space, I was on the moon, I was on Mars. And when you hear it the first time, it's a little troubling. But as it turns out, in the very first clinical trial, this was also reported in all the subjects. So fast forward to 1970, ketamine is approved by the FDA as a general anesthetic. But shortly thereafter, it was also noted to be abused uh, in the West Coast, and slowly it spread throughout the country because of its hallucinogenic properties, again, much like pencyclidine or LSD, um, they're, they're in the same class, uh, it became readily abused. In around 1994, the first studies for ketamine and pain were starting to be published. In 1999, the DEA, after hearing years of uh, reports of ketamine being misused and abused, made it a scheduled medication, a class three non-narcotic substance. 2000, uh, it was found to have shown antidepressant effects. And fast forward to 2019, S-ketamine was approved by the FDA for intranasal use for treatment-resistant depression. So that's a little bit about the history of ketamine. And if anyone is following along with the math, this makes uh, 60 years since ketamine was first synthesized. Yeah, I'll have two comments. One is I was born in the 50s. So, you know, I always like a reference from the 50s. And number two, pigeons. Uh, I'm not sure I've heard uh, research studies done on pigeons, and I'm not sure why they chose pigeons, but uh, certainly different. Very different, especially the, the reaction. And I know that the, you mentioned these drugs are all very dirty. You know, you're an anesthesiologist. I always kind of looked at anesthesia drugs as a black box. And what's the main mechanism of action of the ketamine? Fantastic question. And so the, the answer, unfortunately, is a little bit more complex. So what we do know about ketamine is it binds to the NMDA receptor. It is a non-competitive antagonist to the NMDA receptor. That receptor is located in multiple areas in the central nervous system. Uh, it's found in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, but it's also found in the thalamus. It's found in the limbic system. It's also found in the prefrontal cortex. And so when you ask what the mechanism is, in terms of pain, we oftentimes think it's probably the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Uh, obviously, for depression and mood, you're thinking the limbic system. 
However, as more and more research on ketamine is being done, we found there are multiple other pathways in which ketamine may be exerting its effect. So as I like to tell uh, patients, more likely than not, NMDA is responsible, but not the exclusive mechanism of action. So when we look at patients with chronic pain, uh, I guess it comes down to how do we factor in who uh, it's time to try a ketamine infusion on? You know, how do we select our patients? Obviously, this is the art of medicine. Yes, a- absolutely. I like to say that ketamine is not a first line or even a second line medication, perhaps not even a third line uh, medication for chronic pain. But however, if you've done conservative therapy, if you've tried conventional treatments such as medications, injections, surgery, pain psychology, um, pain rehabilitation programs, and your pain persists, then ketamine may be a good option. Oftentimes, uh, it can be integrated uh, in concert with one of those earlier forms of therapy. However, it's not readily available throughout the the country. So more often than not, it's something patients come to after they've exhausted other options. Uh, As I like to say, if you've given all other reasonable options a try, consider ketamine. And are there certain pain, chronic pain conditions that work better than others? You know, global pain versus regional pain, does it make a difference? Very, uh, very good question. And so the literature for ketamine and pain is somewhat limited. And because of that, if you go based on simply the literature, the most extensively studied states are complex regional pain syndrome, where it's shown to have a modest benefit. Other neuropathic pain states, such as phantom limb, spinal cord injury, um, have some data to suggest it may work. Um, No susceptive pain pathways, such as osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, again, limited to no data. Anecdotally, based on my own experience, I found that ketamine can potentially help with these conditions. But because we don't really understand how it works, we subsequently can't choose the appropriate candidates all the time. But given its good safety profile, I recommend, as I said before, if you've exhausted other methods, give it a try. See if it helps. So I'm just curious, when you give ketamine, where do you do it? What's the operation like? How complicated is it? Yeah, so we're fortunate to have uh, the capabilities here on the the main campus, on the S building, the second floor, the infusion suite. Uh, It's used primarily for headache infusions. However, we are also doing ketamine infusions there. It is done over a five-day period, Monday through Friday. You come in, we start an IV, and we run the ketamine through your bloodstream for approximately 40 minutes. At the end of the infusion, we give you uh, some fluids just to wash it out of your system, and then you can go home. Because ketamine is a general anesthetic, you do need someone to take you back home. Some patients get a little loopy. Some patients don't feel anything. But just to be on the safe side, we do ask someone to bring you home. The mechanism of action, again, because it is not clear, I usually have patients follow up with me in about two weeks afterwards to assess what effects it had. Okay, excellent. Are there specific contraindications, patients that you will not give it to, or what are the relative contraindications? So the side effects of ketamine are dose-dependent. 
So as the dose increases, side effects are more likely, as are the different effects ketamine may have on your heart rate, your blood pressure, uh, your central nervous system. Thankfully, low-dose ketamine, which is what we infuse patients with, have almost no hemodynamic effects. And so at most, we may uh, look into some things that may be precautions. For instance, if a patient has unstable angina, uncontrolled high blood pressure, very significant coronary artery disease, uh, extensive liver failure, psychosis, delirium, those may be reasons to hold off, especially since this is an elective procedure. However, more often than not, uh, the ketamine is a safe option for patients. So chronic pain patients often commingle with mood disorders. And obviously, you had mentioned some that would be a problem with this. But anecdotally, or even published-wise, are you seeing patients reporting improved mood as well as pain? Or are they just feeling better because they're not in chronic pain? Very good question. And so studies will slowly come out to help elucidate that more. What I've seen is four possible outcomes after the infusion. Patients have a significant improvement in pain. Patients have a significant improvement in mood. Sometimes they have both, or unfortunately, sometimes they don't have any effect. And again, because we can't specifically characterize which patients will have an effect, whether it be pain or mood, uh, we have to see how the infusion goes. But I've I've seen all of those. Uh, And more often than not, if a patient comes in with pain, but their mood is better, they consider that a win as well. So you've kind of partially answered this question, but it's probably a little deeper. Uh, What constitutes a positive response then? Do you give them a pain scale and they need to score a certain percentage? Is it just, I feel better? What, What do you guys use? In comprehensive pain recovery, uh, we are a uh, functional functional restoration program. So more often than not, rather than um, a, a number or a survey, we ask what can they do more after the infusion? What has changed in terms of their activities and um, what they want to do or what they'd like to do? Um, and so I consider that a, um, a positive outcome. And we mentioned the mood. Any other potential benefits of the drug besides the pain and mood? As of right now, no. But there are a number of studies being conducted on ketamine, thankfully, uh, now. Uh, And there are a number of studies we'd also like to conduct here uh, now that we have a standardized protocol at the clinic. So uh, side effects. What types of things do we see? uh, What's I'm sure it runs the gamut depending on dose and time, but... What do we see? Absolutely correct. So thankfully, again, at low dose, we don't have to worry about too many side effects. Occasionally, patients may develop a headache. Uh, Nausea isn't uh, completely out of the realm of possibility, though it is rare. As I mentioned from the very first clinical trial of ketamine, patients may feel like they are floating. Rarely do we get to the dose where they're actually having an out-of-body experience or are in space but floating isn't unusual. Uh, aside from that, it's very well tolerated. But again, if you go from the low-dose ketamine to moderate to high-dose, you can get more side effects such as hallucinations uh, and other um, issues. Do you pre-med the patients or no? I do. I do. Just to prevent in the unlikely event they would have any hallucinations, we do give them a uh, low-dose of benzodiazepine before we begin, uh, as well as a uh, anti-nausea medication as well. 
just to prevent any possible adverse outcomes or side effects. So I suspect there's some formula for a max amount of ketamine over a certain period of time. What's your dosing regimen for, you know, uh, I get a treatment today, when can I get treated again? What's the maximum number of treatments? And I'm sure it's a bit dose dependent. It is. So currently we do uh, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram over 40 minutes, over five days. And then we see it's reasonable to repeat it every three to four months, uh, depending on the response. Some patients may get a longer response. Uh, If it's shorter, it doesn't make sense to repeat it um, more than that. And so with three to four treatments a year, that seems to be quite reasonable at this time. The model seems a little bit like caudal epidural blocks that you would give a treatment, see how they do. Hopefully they get a a few months and then retreat them if they recur. Yes, correct. Correct. Very much so. What about addiction? What's my risk of being addicted? Uh, so currently, again, uh, one of the advantages of low-dose ketamine, uh, we do not see any evidence for um, addiction or dependence, whether it be physical dependence or psychological dependence. The literature does show, and again, as I mentioned, as early as the 1970s, um, ketamine has been abused. If you are uh, abusing ketamine, there is a risk for psychological dependence with long-term use. Uh, However, with short-term low-dose infusions, we do not see that. You know, I've heard about detachment uh, issues with people on ketamine. Do you see that with the low-dose infusions? We do not. Are you referring to perhaps the uh, dissociative anesthetic aspect? Yeah. So interestingly enough, there was a paper written about a decade ago by Dr. Domino. As I mentioned, the first clinical trial was done by Dr. Domino and uh, Corson. And he mentioned describing what patients would look like. They'd be seemingly awake, but they wouldn't respond to stimuli. And he was mentioning this to his wife, who um, he says came up with the term dissociative anesthesia. And so... uh, Park Davis, the the company that was trying to get ketamine approved by the FDA, was a little hesitant of introducing this new term, fearing that the FDA may say, what does this actually mean or what are the implications? But that term has stuck around since it was introduced. So you brought it up, so it's probably a good thing to just discuss the FDA. What's the FDA approval for ketamine? Currently, ketamine is approved as a general anesthetic and for sedation. And more recently, in 2019, S-ketamine has been approved for intranasal use for treatment-resistant depression. Uh, Using ketamine for chronic pain is currently an off-label use. So we have a lot of uh, physicians, obviously, listening to the podcast that may have an interest. uh, uh, Reimbursement for the procedure, complicated, not complicated, variable? Variable. Uh, We have not run into any major issues with reimbursement uh, thus far, but the reimbursement is quite variable from uh, carrier to carrier. And let's say you treat me with ketamine uh, and I get a nice response. I'm doing well with it. What's the likelihood I'll be on some form of ketamine long term? Or is it the hope that you'll do a treatment dosages and then stop and use other pain treatments? We like to think of ketamine as one arrow in the pain management quiver, if you will. Oftentimes for chronic pain, we approach it comprehensively. So there's not only self-care, you know, diet, activity, sleep, but there's things providers can help with, medications, 
um, pain psychology, and again, the, the ketamine, more often than not, it is something that needs to be repeated long term. Uh, we're hoping, however, with um, some of the studies coming out and some of the newer formulations, perhaps this is something that can be uh, used at home safely as needed. Um, but currently, it is something that needs to be repeated along with the other uh, techniques we use for chronic pain management. And are there age limits uh, for utilizing the drug? Probably not used in children, but maybe it is. Correct. Um, it has been used in children. Um, my my area of expertise is in adults only, um, and so I have not infused um, it for chronic pain for children, but uh, I don't see any reason why it could not be safely used as it is uh, titrated based on weight. And is there an upper age limit or no? Interestingly enough, uh, the oldest patient I infused with ketamine was when I was at uh, in Connecticut, practicing in Connecticut. He was a World War II veteran. He was in his late 90s. Um, at the end of the infusion, uh, I still remember you mentioned, well, that was fun. <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, because it is so well tolerated at, at a low dose, um, there does not seem to be uh, an upper age limit, thankfully. Nice. So any, uh, besides the ketamine, other new treatment options on the horizon that uh, we should know about? At this point, no. It, it's more formulations of the ketamine. Uh, one of the reasons uh, ketamine tablets aren't used as frequently, again, because of the abuse potential in limited trials, the uh, ketamine, the intranasal spray, has a great deal of interest. There are a number of clinical trials going on with that for chronic pain. Hopefully, the, the idea is to get something that is safe, that a patient can use at home as needed, uh, while also minimizing abuse potential. I think that would be the ultimate goal for this. And what about oral administration of the drug? Yes. Uh, it has poor bioavailability, only about 20-25% bioavailable when taken by mouth. And because of the potential abuse, um, it's not really been studied that extensively. Um, but theoretically, it, it could be, um, if there was some way wouldn't be abused, that may be an option in the future. And is there an antidote uh, for the drug itself or no? Like narcotics do, does this have an antidote? It, it does not. So interestingly enough, when compared to fencyclidine, uh, ketamine is only about a tenth as potent, and it's very short acting. So the effects wear off within 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, uh, a good example of this is when I was doing uh, OB anesthesia. Sometimes if a C-section was going on and the spinal failed, you could use ketamine, which would provide anesthesia to the mother, but you would have to redose it roughly every 10 minutes. And so um, very quick onset, very quick offset. Pavan, I really enjoyed the uh, discussion today. Are there any additional closing uh, responses you'd like to make? As I like to remind patients, chronic pain is a complex disease state. And oftentimes, one treatment modality does not provide the benefit the patient is looking for. So we highly recommend a multimodal treatment response, including self-care, which includes optimizing diet, optimizing activity, optimizing sleep, as well as things we can provide that include medication optimization, pain psychology, as well as ketamine. Well, Pavan, it's been a real pleasure. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience has as well. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Glenn. 
This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.